Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. This is going to be our first horror corner. We'll probably have this segment throughout the rest of October. Here we are in October. As usual in October, there are many horror viewing options that are coming online, whether that is in movie theaters or uh, movies or TV series. Today we'll be discussing two that are both available on Netflix. After all the disparaging things I said about clickbait recently on Netflix, a show I really did not like at all, we have two successful, to different degrees, projects. One is Squid Game, which has become a phenomenon, and I'll get into that in more detail. It's a thriller from South Korea. And the other is Midnight Mass from Mike Flanagan, who previously worked with Netflix on the very successful Haunting of Hill House. And this is his latest project, and he's been very productive in the past few years. And I'll have a breakdown of his career up to this point, as well as this most recent project, which is an interesting one. So this uh, series of episodes, these horror episodes, we you can expect to see more of these throughout October, considering how many noteworthy films and series will be coming out this month. And you can assume that you'll see more of these in the future as well, less frequently, but whenever something really noteworthy in the horror genre or th thriller genre happens to come up and become part of the popular conversation. Before that, some housekeeping. Uh, as you may have known, and, uh, the Emmys were a couple weeks ago. Hardly anybody watched them, but they were given out, and Mayor of Easttown did very well there. If you are now catching up on that show, we do have recaps of those episodes and our conversation about there, Sona and I, and you can just check the same feed for those episodes. Also, we have thorough breakdowns of all the Loki episodes, so if you're catching up on Loki, something that's not Emmy eligible until next year, I believe. Uh, and we'll probably get a lot of nominations, to be honest with you. If you are just catching up on Loki, check those recaps. Currently, uh, we just wrapped up this week our final conversation about Nine Perfect Strangers. The season finale just occurred. I had a lot of criticism of the show. Sona liked it more than I did, although she also had her caveats and critiques. But you can hear all that conversation. It's an interesting conversation that is in the uh, our most recent episodes. And uh, simultaneously, we've been covering Only Murders in the Building. We are continuing to cover that series. If you haven't seen that one, that's a very, very entertaining comedy murder mystery that had a great episode this week that really took the show in a different direction. So if you haven't caught up on it, it's very bingeable. They're only 30-minute episodes, minus credits even less than that. It's available on Hulu. Very entertaining and an excellent episode this week that really puts the show in a place where I honestly don't know where it will go from here. And... Uh, and that's a good thing. I'd like to be surprised. Um, also, Evil, uh, a series on Paramount Plus that we've been covering on and off throughout the, our season here, is wrapping up within the next couple of weeks. And uh, we'll probably here in this Horror Corner wrap up the second half of that uh, series. So if you have been waiting for more recaps there, we probably don't have enough space to do all those recaps, but we'll probably do a back half of the season review catch up that we'll have here in this horror episode or in this series of horror episodes. So look for that later this month. Uh, if you have any horror topics, any movies you've seen recently, maybe some indie horror that you really want to recommend and shout out, please let us know. Send us an email at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And also, uh, if you are a horror fan, or even if you are a horror fan, and you know somebody else in your friend and family circle that likes horror movies and thrillers as well, please recommend our 
series to them. It's a great way to support the show. Okay, with that all out of the way, I want to start off this week with recommendations like I normally do. And what I want to start with is very exciting news for me that a movie called Memories of Murder from 2003 is now available on Hulu. This is, I believe, the second film that Bong Joon-ho directed. Sorry about the pronunciation. Um, For those who are not familiar with that director, he's the director of Parasite, and he's made some English language films as well. He made like Snowpiercer, for example, which is now a series as well. But he has become a hugely successful South Korean director, most prominently with Parasite, which made nearly $300 million and won Best Picture in the United States uh, for a foreign language film. Extremely rare. But once again, Memories of Murder, all the way back in 2003. This is a film that has been very hard to find for a very long time. And I'm so happy that this is now easily available to viewers. This movie is based on a true serial killer case in South Korea. And it's just great across the board. First of all, this is Zodiac before the movie Zodiac, David Fincher's Zodiac, in that it is a movie about these police officers that become obsessed with solving this crime. And uh, almost all the facts in it, unlike a lot of these films, almost all the facts in it are true. So it makes it very interesting to explore, like a lot of South Korean genre films, by the way, and we'll discuss it when we talk about Squid Game in this episode. South Korean titles have this very interesting ability of shifting tone from the horrific to the hilarious, like comedy and horror abutting each other. And it's something that's very hard to pull off. Tarantino, as far as um, US filmmakers, is someone who occasionally can pull this off, but it is pretty much de rigueur for South Korean genre films. And you do see some of this here, although the second half of this movie, uh, Memories of Murder, that is, becomes very serious and very dark. And I'll just highly recommend this. If everything that I recommend here today, and I will be recommending everything today that we've, that we'll discuss, uh, I give a thumbs up to, but this is my highest thumbs up. This was literally on my decade list of, you know, my favorite films of the decade. It is so powerful and so surprising. The last scene of this film haunts me to this very day. So I think it's a very, very unique and uh, interesting film and really showed even early in his career, just what a great career that Bang Joon-ho was going to have. Speaking of haunting final scenes, another South Korean thriller, question mark, is this a drama? Is this a thriller? Very hard to decide. (laughs) And it's really up to you. I'd love to hear back from you if you've seen this movie or do choose to watch it. It's a movie called Burning from 2018. Has a great cast, really great performances across the board, especially from Steven Yoon, who's had an incredible career after leaving The Walking Dead, uh, up to him getting an Academy Award nomination last year for Minari. Um, so he's had a really interesting career post, you know, fame from The Walking Dead. But he gives a really riveting performance in this movie, Burning, which is a very, very slow burn, ironic enough that it's called Burning. So it's very slow going. If you're not a patient viewer, I don't know if I would recommend this to you. But if you are patient, I, for myself, was mesmerized by it. I know a lot of people call it slow. I found that even the slowest parts were really like lulling me into a sense of mystery and uh, psychological complexity. So I'm really looking carefully to see if there's something that I'm missing. And it really pays off. The last moments of this film, it's like a mousetrap snapping on you as a viewer. And uh, it really is very ambiguous. You can discuss the ending of this film for a very long time about as to what you're actually seeing there at the end. And it's uh, a great conversation piece. If you have the patience for it, once again, that's Burning from 2018. Another really fascinating South Korean thriller. 
So once again, those are my recommendations on Hulu. You can watch Memories of Murder. Uh, Burning, I believe, is still on Netflix. So track it down. If it's not there, I'm sure it's somewhere streaming. So check that one out. And of course, also from Bong Joon-ho, um, the director of Memories of Murder, Parasite, if you haven't seen it yet, easily available, available on Hulu, available on Canopy, um, available a lot of places for, for streaming. If you still haven't caught up on Parasite, really just a great entertaining movie which is horror adjacent there are moments in that film although it's a drama and sometimes a comedy that goes straight into horror so a really fascinating film as well so if you haven't seen that one yet please do catch up with that all right with recommendations out of the way let's talk about squid game squid game just popped up on netflix just about a week ago maybe a little over a week at this point and has really exploded in popularity on that site as a matter of fact there was an announcement from netflix about the fact that this was not only their series that was getting the, the fastest viewership in history, they were pretty sure that within a month or so, this would be their most successful season of a show ever, which is saying quite a lot. And as a matter of fact, just out of your curiosity, if you're interested, they did announce their top 10 most popular seasons of TV, which I found pretty interesting. So I'm going to include it right here. At number one, they have Bridgerton which is coming back for another season, by the way, with 625 million hours of viewership, 625 million hours. Number two was the fourth season of Money Heist. Number three was the most recent season of Stranger Things. Number four was the first season of Witcher. Number five and number six are the second and first season of 13 Reasons Why. Number seven was the second season of You. You is coming back for a third season, by the way, this month. The second season of Stranger Things is at number eight. Money Heist's third season is at number nine. And number 10 is at is um, Ginny and Georgia with 381 million hours. Now, I include that just because it's curious that, you know, we don't really ever get accurate Netflix ratings information. So it's interesting whenever they do disclose anything that they have been or any kind of data about their viewership. But I also included here to mention the fact that how when you think about those massive numbers, 600, 700 million hours almost of some of those shows, that this show, Squid Game, may eclipse all of those shows within a month or so, which is pretty shocking statistic. So the show itself. Honestly, when this came up on my recommendations on Netflix, I kind of wasn't interested in watching it, even though I know it was getting some kind of attention. Um, you know, there was some buzz around it. And primarily it was because I felt like I knew the show I was going to watch. You know, there's been shows like Cube, or movies, I should say, like Cube, uh, Circle, Would You Rather, uh, even like Escape Room and Saw that have elements of this, right? So I kind of thought like, okay, I kind of know what it is. It's these adults, they're playing, you know, um, games for money, and, you know, there'll be some social commentary, etc. which all those things are absolutely true. But what I will say is that this show is like a cut above, and it is so well executed that every single episode basically surprises you with the direction that the show goes in, in a really excellent way. And each one of these plot contrivances are actually thematically interesting. So I'll go into a little bit why I like horror so much. I don't like horror movie for jump scares. You know, some people like jump scares. I'm not a fan and they rarely work on me anyway. And I'm not there for the gore, although I don't mind gore at all. I've watched so many horror movies that I'm pretty desensitized to gory content, but it's not something, I know some people like the gore, they like the extremity. What I like about horror movies and genre movies in general, I would say, is that since you're comfortable with the rules of the genre, you don't have to spend a lot of time setting up the world because you kind of can take shortcuts. And what that allows you to do is to quickly go into exploring big topics through a side door, let's say, 
that takes things out of the real world, right? So it allows you, for example, to watch The Dark Knight, not a horror movie, but a genre movie, and to discuss the limits of control and what we do when we see like a terroristic threat is the fix worse than the problem, depending on the extremes we go to. So it allows you to explore topics by taking them out of your day to day. And we've seen, by the way, similar topics in the hugely successful like Hunger Games movies, for example, right? The Hunger Games deals with a lot of these same types of social questions when power consolidates to a very small group of folks. But I think this Squid Game series does it better than just about any other example of this that I've seen. There seems to be a real concern, by the way, and I don't know enough about the current situation in South Korea to understand exactly the true social dynamics there currently, but for sure in their popular entertainment TV series like this one, Squid Game, as well as movies like Parasite, which I discussed briefly before, and Burning as well, possibly, are all films that discuss the extremes that people will go to to achieve some kind of monetary success. So it's a critique of capitalism, but it's also a critique of the callousness of the South Korean people as they've kind of achieved this economic boon in the past decades. They've had huge growth in South Korea. It's gone from being a very, very poor country back in the 70s to being one of the largest economies in the world. And these films and this show specifically deal with that topic. But it's not just in South Korea that we've had some of these questions. When you think about a very popular Netflix film from early COVID era, uh, The Platform from Spain, uh, Ready or Not, another horror movie that kind of dealt with some of these topics, a US movie just a couple of years ago, The Purge series, of course, um, and of course, all of Jordan Peele's projects, whether he's directing them like Get Out or Us, specifically Us, actually, as far as like uh, the cultural underclass represented metaphorically, as well as films he's produced like Candyman and other films that he has coming as well. So all this is to say that there has been kind of a trend towards these socially conscious thrillers and horror films. And this is part of that. But it's really just really entertaining. And you, I can understand why it's become so hugely successful. So in Squid Game, what kind of differentiates and makes it a cut above from some of these similar projects in the past? Basic setup, by the way, is, and this is all set up very early on, we have a bunch of characters. This is pretty much de rigueur. This, this is pretty cliche, by the way, for this type of film. We're primarily introduced to our main character, Zhang J. Lee, Zhang J. Lee, Sorry about, once again, for the pronunciation. We basically primarily are introduced to this one character. He's our, the main POV character for most of the show. And he's kind of a loser. He has a young daughter. He lives with his mother. He's stealing money from her. He's pretending he's hustling for work, but he's really just gambling. And we kind of see the lay of the land pretty quickly. And this is all defined pretty early on. We get a very good understanding in very broad strokes about who this character is. And then once we have that set up, at about halfway through to three quarters of the way through the first episode, what's happened is that he kind of gets invited into this, this game situation where you can play games of chance and you can earn money for those for winning those games. And once again, this is a pretty standard setup. But by the end of their first game, which is Red Light, Green Light, which is the title of the episode, so no spoilers there. But by the end of the first game, the show has already taken some leaps, some really shocking leaps by the time you get to that end of that first game. And another thing that's interesting about the show as it develops over time is that there are rules. There's supposedly a fair, quote unquote, set of rules for everybody where a majority vote 
means that you can change the game. But in the end, there really are no choices to be had here. And I think that base just enriches this metaphor they're trying to make. Another thing that's kind of interesting is over time, you get to see that there are these guards who wear masks, so we don't see their faces. But we find out that they're kind of in a trap of their own. So as the show develops, it's not just these plot twists that keep you on your toes, keep, keep surprising you with what's going to happen next. It really enriches the underlying themes. And this is kind of what I was discussing that I really like when you have the ability in a horror movie or genre movie to be able to explore these themes very deeply. And as the story and the twists come, that metaphor becomes richer, not more obscure, but richer and more potent. And it's, it's really, really good. So by the end of episode one, I guarantee you, you will be hooked. And by the way, by the end of episode one, you will be totally surprised by the outcome of that first episode. So definitely tune in, try out that first episode. I guarantee you, you're hooked. I do want to have one caveat here, which is this is a pretty gruesome show. So if you have a real aversion to gore, this might be a deal breaker for you. But I will say that the show does ease you in to the gore in that it gets more extreme, but kind of like a show like Dexter, which is also very grisly, that it becomes part of the plot in a way where it doesn't, it's not thrown in your face to shock you. It's there to support the, the film itself. So it's possible that you may not be bothered by it. Once again, take all this with a grain of salt. If you are someone who really has an aversion to gore, you may want to skip this project. Our main POV character, the actor Jung J. Lee, really does such a transformation here, really. And I recommend, by the way, watch this with subtitles, not with dubbing. I always have a problem with dubbing. Netflix actually does a pretty great job with dubbing, but still, you're just not getting the full performance when you're not hearing the character, the actor's voice. Such an important part of their performance. But the transformation he has from the beginning of the series to the end is pretty remarkable. He starts off as such a goofy idiot <laughs> but the kind of beaten down way that you know or the, the way that he gets beaten down over the course of the film and the way his character deepens is really impressive and he does does a great job as do all the other actors but i just want to call him out specifically considering so much of the film relies on him definitely gonna get hooked by episode one if you've heard my criticisms of nine perfect strangers and how arbitrary the plotting is the plotting here is so utterly clever each plot twist enriches the themes of the film take the show or the series, I should call it, and take the show in a new direction. And always you're just like, well, what are they going to do with this? And not only is it just an arbitrary hook for the next episode, that theme that is introduced by that twist is fully explored in the next. So it's almost like these little capsules of ideas that are introduced as these consequences of these games get higher, the stakes get higher and higher. So it, it's, it's just such a cleverly plotted, well done show. It reminds me a little bit in very, very different ways of something like Lost, where the next twist actually enriched the show. I'd say like the season one of Lost, let's say. It lost, kind of lost its way, no pun intended, over the time of over its run. But, uh, you know, it's something that kind of really pulls you through one episode after the other. And it makes you really think about these themes that they're raising. It's really clever. It's definitely a criticism of capitalism, but in a lot of ways, just the way we treat each other, the way we ignore the consequences that our actions have on each other so it, it's 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 really really interesting and there's no easy answers to any of this but i really recommend it very very highly so that's the end of my spoiler free review if you want to have slight spoilers i'm only going to spoil episodes one and two then you can um, jump ahead all right so if you want to get slightly spoiled because you're still on the fence as to whether you want to watch this or not episode one ends with this utterly brutal game of red light green light when these people who've been kind of 
taking this game pretty lightly up until this point, realize that this is life or death and it is brutal. And uh, the game is, the, the results of the game are shocking. The, the allegiances that get formed are surprising. It's all really um, disturbing and riveting. But then at the very end of episode one, here's where we go into minor spoilers. They actually say, wait a second. One of the rules is that we can get a majority vote and we can uh, exit the game. So they take a vote. And guess what? Of the survivors, a lot of people die, by the way, of the survivors of that first game, people decide to opt out. Now, there's a lot of money at stake. So it's supposedly that's the fairness. You have a democratic vote. So that's the fairness factor right there. This is your own vote. There's nothing unfair about this. But of course, they've already put them in a situation where they've already lost so much. Do they now want to surrender what they've already given up uh, for, you know, for no reward potentially, right? And that's the reason that they have this vote. And the vote goes to exit the game. So they free them. There's no strings attached. They all go back home. Now, looking at, I just look at the IMDb as a kind of a reference point for me. I look at how people are reviewing individual episodes. The second episode, which is the one I'm going to discuss right now, is the one that has the worst ratings. And I think the reason that viewers give this one the worst ratings is because there's no game in the second episode. There's no games. I want to see more games, right? I couldn't disagree more. The second episode is the absolute best episode of this show because what they do is they go back home and they go back to their lives, these miserable lives. They, they were so desperate that they actually accepted this in the first place, accepted this or this invitation to go play this game. And they return to those lives and they realize that back in the real world, they are now losers again. And it's as if, once again, there's supposedly this free will that you can vote, you can exit the game, but they can't, they go back. Almost all of them go back for another round. And it's just so fascinating seeing these characters in their day-to-day -day lives, seeing all these different miserable traps they put themselves into because in, in every case, it's because they've been tracked down because they're in too much debt, basically. So whether they're millionaires who have overextended or whether they're broke and they have bookies coming after them, in either case, you have people who simply have run out of credit. You see them back in their lives at all these different strata in society, but they're all have nothing to look forward to anymore. And they all opt to go back into the game. <laughs> and it's fascinating. It's really, really great. And then that's it. I'm not going to spoil anything beyond that. Um, just uh, episode one and two. But I hope that if you were on the fence, I hope that gets you over the line. It's excellent. And please check it out. And let me know what you think. Drop me an email. All right, next topic. Once again, we're still on Netflix. Netflix has put out a lot of really bad horror this summer. I'm looking at you, Fear Street movies. <laughs> Oh, and I'm looking at you, brand new cherry flavor on Netflix. So boy, I tried to watch Netflix horror this summer and uh, didn't like any of it. So I was kind of expecting more bad news. But here we are back again with Netflix. And the next series I'm going to be talking about is Midnight Mass, Mike Flanagan's newest. We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend, the more brittle we become. The easier to break. That wasn't an act of God. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say, why, 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 I don't understand.
So Mike Flanagan began making movies about 10 years ago. He came to California to become a director, and actually his original intent was to turn 1408, a Stephen King short story, into a feature film, and the rights were not available at the time. So he basically took the premise of that haunted hotel room. By the way, that probably sounds familiar to you. It was a very popular film with John Cusack and Sam Jackson just a few years back, maybe 10 years ago or so, and a very popular film. And that haunted hotel premise that he was hoping to adapt, he basically modified it slightly, turned it into a haunted mirror, and uh, turned that into a short film called Oculus, which got a lot of attention for him. That short film, which I've never seen, although I've seen most of his other films, did get enough attention where he got funding for a very low-budget movie called Absentia, which I did see even then before I knew who Mike Flanagan was. And basically, I had watched it because I had heard it was a very proficient, low-budget movie. And it really is. It's actually available for free on 2B TV if you want to catch up with it. It is very cheap, made for tens of thousands of dollars. But if you are an aspiring filmmaker, I really like what you can do on such a small budget. And I like that he has good performances from his cast, which is not are not that seasoned and yet give good performances and I also like the idea that he's playing with this concept of what are we watching is this real is this someone having a psychological break of some kind and it has this tension throughout so an interesting little film and the success of that film got him enough attention where he actually got some funding a few million dollars to make his next movie which was a big screen adaptation of his short film Oculus and with that money he actually got a actual cast he has Karen Gillan this is before she became Nebula in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and uh, also very famous from the Jumanji films as well, and Doctor Who also. And other well-known folks here too, Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica, and Kate Siegel, for the first time having a relatively small part, Kate Siegel would eventually marry Mike Flanagan and has appeared in most of his uh, films since this point. And Oculus was a pretty decent-sized hit. Uh, and that got him an even bigger budget movie, Before I Wake, which had problems in its release because the studio that produced it basically went bankrupt. But it's actually a pretty good film if you can track it down. I think it's available on one of those streaming services. Definitely out there somewhere. Also with very good performances, you have Kate Bosworth, Thomas Jane, and Jacob Tremblay in the main roles. And it's basically a family that adopts a child who has uh, psychic abilities and uh, can project nightmarish visions into the people around them. And this, I thought, visually very well done. I think the execution of the hallucinations is very well done and it's kind of a forgotten film in his um catalog and then he started working very frequently he made the ouija sequel which got very good reviews i don't really like that movie that much that has some good visuals in it but uh overall it's probably one of the ones i like least of his another important point in his career so then he partnered for the first time with netflix to make maybe my favorite film of his with his future wife kate siegel it's a movie called hush it's a home invasion film where Kate Siegel is basically, it's really almost just two characters in the entire film, the invader and the person inside the house. And uh, it's really, really good. The tension is incredibly tense. And this is the first time he worked with Netflix. I believe it had like a $1 million budget and it was hugely successful on Netflix. So Netflix definitely wanted to find another project to do with him. And he found Gerald's Game, which is a Stephen King book. If you're not familiar with that book, it's been considered unadaptable for a very long time because the protagonist in the film spends most of the time handcuffed to a bed. That's basically the entirety of the story and really plays out inside her mind. So how do you pull this off as a film? It's something that was seemed almost impossible. Instead, he made this film with a great performance, by the way, by Carla Gugino. The film turns out to be very interesting, very good. And uh, if anything, it's just so impressive that you're able to even pull this off. Again, Netflix produced it and a huge success. A lot of viewers for Netflix. So he stayed in the 
Netflix business for his next, pro next project, which was his huge breakthrough, which is The Haunting of Hill House, which was a hugely successful miniseries back in 2018. For me, I feel like the second half of this season doesn't really work, but the first half of this season, the first five episodes of this show are truly excellent. So I really enjoy this a lot. And this it really made him like a household name or as close to a household name as, as he had been. And that really became a, a brand that um, continued to work for Netflix. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, he produced The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I have not watched also. I've heard it was not as good as um, Haunting of Hill House. But with a lot of the same cast, he took it to another haunted house setting. He wrote most of the scripts and he only directed one episode. So it wasn't fully his project, but he definitely shepherded it to the screen. Didn't really see that one. I heard positive but mixed reviews on it in general and that same year he also produced Dr. Sleep which uh, was a sequel to The Shining and my opinion of Dr. Sleep is that I don't think it works fully it's once again very impressive as an adaptation of a not great Stephen King property that he is able to make a sequel to the book and the movie The Shining the famous Kubrick movie The Shining so he's actually able to somehow thread these two things together in making a sequel to both properties which are very different from each other if you've actually read the book versus the movie. And that uh, gets a good performance by Ewan McGregor. And also, Rebecca Ferguson gives a great performance here with a terrible hat on <laughs> for some reason. She's called Rose the Hat, and she wears a very weird, weird hat. Not a huge fan of <laughs> her styling in this movie, but it is a good performance for her. And uh, it makes the, sh the film entertaining enough to watch. It's strange. It almost feels like some Stephen King properties that have elements of child adventure, kind of like It, specifically more so the book than the actual adaptations of It, but it really feels like a child adventure, but with really, you know, R-rated violence. And there are aspects of Dr. Sleep that feel this way also. I didn't feel it was fully successful. Some people really love this. And by the way, there's a director's cut, which everyone says is much better than the original. I've only seen the original cut, so I can't speak to that. But if you do happen to track it down, or if you've seen the original, maybe you can track down the director's cut, which used to be available on HBO Max. It's not currently available there right now. But that all leads us to his most recent property, which is Midnight Mass. So the basic premise of this show is that we have a dying New England fishing town. It's actually an island. Don't know if it's an actual location or not, or if it's just a fictional New England town. And the story unfolds actually very slowly. There's just a slight sense of unease in the early episodes very little supernatural. We definitely see, or people think they see, some supernatural being randomly here and there. And there are a few jump scares here and there. But honestly, the first few episodes, other than some like strange things happening that people don't really quite know how to explain, there's very little horror and uh, very little indication that this may even be a horror show at all. Meanwhile, I have my, perhaps my criticism that sometimes Flanagan's writing can be a little too on the nose. And I think about how in Dr. Sleep, that these actors are able to pull off some pretty clunky dialogue. But here, and in a lot of his TV, mostly TV projects, I find that the actors sometimes have trouble trying to deliver some of this very over-expository dialogue. Mike Flanagan not only directs, but almost always writes his own material as well. So there's a lot to be said for the amount of control he has over the properties, but sometimes I feel it could be a little too much that, he's whole, that he has there. So, like I mentioned, some of these actors really struggle with this dialogue, and it's more noticeable here, especially in this show, perhaps, because early on, there is so little going on to kind of draw us. And honestly, I had to kind of work to get through those first couple of episodes. Some of these actors, it's not 
that they're giving terrible performances. There's just something about these actors, and I think we all have this, where some actors, we just don't like to watch them on screen. They really just don't connect with us. And I have to say, I, I'm very unfamiliar with this actor, Zach Guilford. Didn't work for me. And uh, similarly, another character who's very, very important, another actor who's very important to the, the proceedings is Hamish Linklater, who really didn't work for me. And he has a lot of the heavy lift in this show. He gives a very mannered performance in general. He always does, which worked for me. He was in Legion, another show on FX, which it did work for me there. And he's wearing makeup in that as well. So maybe that's part of the reason I can accept it more. But here, it doesn't really work for me, let's say. And maybe this is a slight spoiler, but if you know these actors, there's a lot of actors that are recognizable character actors in this show, and they've been in other Mike Flanagan projects. So if you've watched all of Mike Flanagan's projects, you've seen these actors before. Basically, you know they're not the age they present on screen, and you see a lot of bad wigs, a lot of bad beards, and some pretty bad old age makeup here and there. So you know something's going to happen with that. And all of this made it pretty rough going for me, honestly, for those first few episodes. And I know you're thinking right now, wait a second, Victor, didn't you say at the beginning of this whole thing that you were going to get kind of give everybody a thumbs up? And here's the thing. <laughs> I am going to give this thing a thumbs up because with all of this difficult, awkward missteps I see early in the development of the show, by the time we get to the end of episode four, and really, it's really in episode five that this really all comes together. This all coheres. And as a matter of fact, maybe even some of that weirdness that we saw early on, some of these kind of awkward missteps that I felt were missteps in the scripting and in this kind of cliched character development, maybe it was all intentional. So maybe I, I might be giving Flanagan a little too much credit, but maybe this was all intentional to put us in to set our expectations with cliches and then kind of subvert them a bit. The uh, fifth episode is really excellent. And not only does it cohere the story, it enriches this metaphor. Once again, what I really like about horror and genre films is this ability of exploring big ideas by using these kind of myths almost as a framework. And I really like when horror works as a metaphor. And this is a very potent metaphor, maybe even a very targeted political metaphor, possibly. And it asks the show in general is asking us what happens when your suit desperately wants to believe something that no matter how much evidence you have to the contrary, you can't let go of this fantasy of what might be happening. And I think that's actually a very relevant question in this day and age. We live in a, in a world where you know people will bend over backwards to believe something that is a convenient fantasy rather than the incontrovertible reality around them. And especially when there is kind of a feedback loop around the culture around you to kind of feed you more of the same. It makes it easier to believe something that may not necessarily be true. So. Is it enough to say, well, episode five and six are so good that you need to watch this thing because you, know, you really got to hang in there. I, I usually hate those type of reviews. You just got to hang in there long enough before it's good. I would say yes, because those episodes are so good and because they make some of the groundwork that was earl uh, from earlier uh, actually pay off. So what I would say is I think it's worth it. Mileage may, may vary for you, but it does raise some very interesting questions. And I think if you really explore those ideas, it is pretty, it's dealing with them on a pretty powerful level. Last thing I mentioned is that Kate Siegel, everything she does in the last episode, her actions as well as her performance in general, uh, are all very interesting, all very good. I really liked her in that last episode. She really steals the second, or even the, the very late stages of the story. She does a really great job. And here's my final notes here. So the first one is, and you'll have to see the show to know what I'm talking about, because I don't want to give this away. The film really, uh, sorry, the series really feels like 
a folk horror. It's kind of like, you know, there's this religious community. They're in the middle of nowhere. It really feels like these kind of like The Wicker Man or Midsommar, something like that, like a cult type folk horror. Strangers in a Strange Land and what is up with these folks. That's kind of the genre it plays with initially. And then it becomes a completely different genre of film or series, I should say, that I do not want to give away because it would be a spoiler. And then it merges these two things together in interesting ways, I believe. But my last two points here before I exit is one, if these people on this island watched a lot more horror movies, none of this would have happened. <laughs> I'm really surprised that like, why is nobody saying the, stating the obvious? But maybe that's the point of the show as well. But you'll see when you watch the show what I'm talking. And the second note I have, and I'd love to hear back feedback from people. My read of this show is downright blasphemous. I mean, I think that this is <laughs> like potentially a very, very blasphemous piece of work. So if you agree with me, let me know and reach out to me, send me an email, need some introduction at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback. All right, so that is that wraps things up. Once again, of the two, Squid Game is the better project, but this is also very interesting and I think definitely worthwhile. And I do look forward to what Mike Flanagan does next. Uh, you may have to hang in there a little bit, but uh, I do think it's doing pretty well. As a matter of fact, if you look at Netflix right now, number one is Squid Game, number two is Midnight Mass. So I do think it's finding an audience. Um, so maybe people are more patient viewers than I am. Uh, and you may just be hooked right in. But for me, it took a little while, but it did pay off. So hang in there if you're a little frustrated early on. Next week, we're going to be talking about Candyman, which I just saw recently. And I'm not sure what we're going to pair it with. Potentially, I've also just watched Lovecraft Country. I might pair it up with that because they're both produced by Jordan Peele. So there could be a little synergy in that conversation. But there's also a new Megan Fox horror movie that's supposed to be very good. And uh, that's possibly something I watched this weekend. And maybe that'll be the topic for next week. But maybe, maybe all three, if there's enough time to discuss all three. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed those. Recommend this to somebody, anybody who likes horror thrillers. Uh, if, you, if any of this sounded interesting to you, please watch the films and then give me some feedback. And I'd love to hear from you. All right. Talk to you soon.